With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars Larson. Thanks for listening to my podcast and for listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I have to tell you, if I uh, admit that I have a dog in the fight, I don't really have a dog in the fight here because I don't do any business with the Better Business Bureau. Now, I don't think much of the Better Business Bureau lately because for the last several years, we, we talked to Mike Lindell about this years, literally years ago, because he had a, an excellent Better Business Bureau rating. And then he started backing Donald Trump in the race to be president. And as soon as that happened, the BBB suddenly decided that uh, Mike Lindell was a bad guy, at least in their view. And, uh, and I thought that was, that was sleazy. In other words, it sounds like crony capitalism. If you pay our organization, we'll give you a good rating. If we don't like your politics, we'll give you a bad rating. To me, the BBB uh, really, really messed with its own image and its own reputation by doing that kind of thing. So I, I don't think much of the BBB. But other than that, I've got no other dog in the fight when it comes to the Better Business Bureau because I just think that they, uh, they, they have let some of their credibility go. Well, our friend Seaton Motley, who I'd planned to have join us here, I'll probably go to calls instead. But uh, what Seaton wrote about is the fact that the places that we thought were straight shooters, things like the BBB, they described themselves as an ethical marketplace where buyers and sellers trust each other. Mission, their mission is to be a leader in advancing marketplace trust. Well, that all sounds good. They see trust as a function of two factors, integrity and performance, including respect, ethics, intent, and working on a diverse and inclusive, equitable marketplace. Well, the problem is they've kind of gone woke. And the guy who describes that best is my friend Seat Motley, the president of Less Government. Seaton, I just explained to my audience that I didn't think much of the BBB after they decided to go after Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, and he talked about it on this show, uh, merely because he had backed Donald Trump. And I thought, what does that have to do with his business? But he immediately went from right. a, you know, an A rating down to an F rating uh, because they didn't like his politics. One more way of forcing people to comply you know, with, with whatever the woke crowd wants. But you've written about this at Less Government. Uh, tell my audience what they should know about the BBB. Well, it's 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 been a pay-for-play joint for a long time. Uh, there was a story way back in 2010 where um, a, a couple of groups that uh, ABC, believe it or not, Brian Ross got a hold of, and they got it had like C-minus ratings for one bad customer incident that happened like 
two years prior and had been resolved, and they started a C-minus rating. So that in front of Brian Ross at ABC, they called the Better Business Bureau and said, how do we get a better grade? This has been resolved for two years. Oh, you pay us 500 bucks, <laughs> and then you'll get an A-plus rating. Um, additionally, some other guy signed up Hamas, and because the $500 cleared, they got an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. And, of course, they had like a dozen examples of errors. And the, the president then of, of, of the BBB came out, oh, these are errors. Really, a dozen errors, all predicated upon the check clearing. That seems to be like a pattern, not a series of random errors. And like you said, on their website now, they have the, the integrity of the business uh, depends on equity and diversity. And, no, and, inclus- and inclusiveness. And we know that those are all code words, you know, because you say, well, you want to be inclusive. Okay, you are. Well, it, but except that it means something other than what you might think inclusiveness means. Right, right. It means what the left means it to be. And as you said, Mike Lindell ran into this buzzsaw with the Better Business Bureau, where he went from an A-plus to an F because of his political choice in a presidential election that had nothing to do with his business. So it reminds me of the old Buckley, Will Buckley line, any entity that's created, that's not inherently created to be conservative ends up liberal. And just as, a, just as an example, I looked up their national headquarters. They have two. One is in McLean, Virginia. Now, I grew up out there. You know, I was born and raised right outside D.C., for people who don't know, McLean, Virginia is the richest portion of Northern Virginia there is. It's very tony, very expensive, and the Better Business Bureau is there. And if you can't get by their McLean, Virginia offices, they're on Madison Avenue in New York City. Now, nothing says small business to me like Madison Avenue and McLean, Virginia. <laughs> so, 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 so the whole thing has gone institutional D.C., the whole thing has gone elite. This is the whole thing has gone woke, and I just you know the the, well, the, the thing that made me look real quick. The thing that made me look at them was they just issued a report slamming payday lenders. You and I have discussed this, right? And I wanted to put into proper context what the Better Business Bureau slamming payday lenders probably means. I couldn't find it, but I would imagine that little payday lenders who exist in storefronts in the poor parts of town probably didn't cough up the five, six, eight hundred bucks for a payday lender I mean for a better business bureau rating. Well that's and just the a scam that are against them probably Th- have. Just, and, and here's the thing, Seton. I've always used as one of my examples, and maybe I'll find out someday it's a bad one, but underwriters laboratories, right? They're independent. Yes, they have to have support to to stay in business, but they evaluate things and as as near as I can tell because uh, I've got no connection to them either. I don't get any money from them, and, and I don't want any money from them. They test consumer products. They tell you the ones that are flawed. If they think they're, they're good, they're not gonna, your toaster isn't going to explode, then they say we're going to give it the underwriter's uh, laboratory seal of approval. And they do it very, it, it seems, agnostically, so that uh, you know, they say this is a good appliance or it's not. It's, not, it's a good appliance if you pay us $500. And, and so it is possible to run evaluating agencies like that as a private sector. And, this, and UL is not a government agency. They're a private sector business or private sector entity, uh, I guess. I don't even know, I don't even know if they're, they're they, owned. They may be a nonprofit. Yeah. yeah, a nonprofit. Yeah, I know what you mean. 
But but why not run things that way and say, we're not going to take political money, nor are you going to pressure us politically to support these people? You know, like Black Lives Matter has been ripping people off left and right. But who's under federal indictment or under state indictment now in New York? That'd be Steve Bannon. What for? For the Build the Wall Foundation. You're like, okay, uh, why, why is he in trouble? And the folks who ripped off tens of millions of dollars on behalf of BLM, they're not in any trouble. Well, because their right. politics are right, and Bannon's politics are are right, meaning wrong, and in, ba- in the left. And, and 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 back and back to the Better Business Bureau, there is literally no reason for them to officially care about Lindell's endorsement of Trump. There was no Better no. Business Bureau business uh, in 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 who he endorsed. The question is, do his pillows work? Do his slippers work? Do his sheets work? And the fact that he went from A to F because he endorsed Trump tells you all you need to know about the Better Business Bureau. It certainly does. That's Seton Motley, the president of Lust Government. Seton, thank you very much. If you want to drop into the show, 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can always vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And if you don't like Twitter like me, go to my website, LarsLarson.com. And you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. I always look forward to visiting with Senator Marsha Blackburn, who does a great job representing the great state of Tennessee. She's on the phone with me right now. Senator, did we have to pull you out of a committee meeting or away from a vote on the floor? I hope not. You know what? You didn't pull me away at all. We were, we're busy and balancing some things and trying to defend freedom, free markets, and free people. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So, uh, but I take it that balance is being thrown off by Joe Biden's green agenda. He's done enough damage to the country already. Is he really going to push forward with this stuff, knowing what it's going to do to the country? One of the things I think they're doing is basically saying to the American people, we don't care what it does because we have a goal. We're very intentional in the steps that we're taking, and we're going to push forward putting the Green New Deal in place, raising your taxes, having the American people uh, pay for this, and making certain that what they are doing is putting us on the path to socialism. But, Senator, the usual way to change things in America is you pass laws in the Congress, the president signs them, the courts can take a look at them and see if they're actually constitutional. But Joe wants to circumvent all of that, by, by by saying I'm going to do it as a as a presidential declaration of an environmental emergency, can he do that? Well, he's going to try to do another executive order. And bear in mind, all of this war on oil and gas that he's carried out, he has done all of this by executive order, and he is doing his best to circumvent the House and the Senate. And it's amazing that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are letting him do that. They are really kowtowing to the administration and not defending the legislative branch of this government, because bear in mind, the Democrats are in charge of everything right now. Well, in the last year and a half, it strikes me, I don't have the full list in front of me, but Joe Biden has pushed a lot of executive orders, including orders on on COVID vaccination for certain groups of federal employees and things like that. And for the most part, he's been shot down by the courts. So is he just going to push this through to say, I want to do this in an election year, knowing it'll it'll eventually probably be overturned by the courts and it won't matter anyway? 
Indeed. Or when we have another president in 24, those executive orders will be removed. And also, after Republicans take the House and the Senate this year in November, then what you'll see is legislation that would push forward the Keystone Pipeline, that would open Anwar back up for drilling, that would go back to drilling offshore in the Gulf, that would restore the ability for companies to do fracking, that would put us back on the road for energy independence so we can get the price of a gallon of gas down, so that we can get inflation down, so that we can have some normalcy back in this country. You know, in Tennessee, Lars, we've got so many people that say they're having a tough time doing filling up the tank and going to the grocery store and filling up the grocery cart. Well, and, and you know, I worry, I worry about people's personal transportation, Senator. You know who I'm really worried about? I'm worried about those people in business uh, because the person who's running, say, home construction in Tennessee or anywhere else who says, hey, my diesel bill for all that equipment I have to use to build houses uh, the bill just doubled or tripled, at least doubled, and, and now I'm going to have to go back to my client. And when he or she does that, the client says, well, if that's the, the, the new cost of the thing I was going to have you build, I can't afford to build it anymore. And that business just goes away, both for the contractor and for the client who hoped to build the house or the new business or whatever it is. And for the transportation folks, when they say to their customers, well, we can still get your goods to you, probably late because of the supply chain crisis Biden still hasn't addressed, but it's going to cost this much more. And at that point, some of the people who, buy, who are buying things, you know, the things that show up in the store shelves say, we push the prices that much higher because of transportation costs. People aren't going to buy as much, so we're going to order less. I mean, all of this augurs toward, uh, you know, making the economy fail worse than it appears to be failing right now. Am I wrong? No, you're right about that. And I had some great conversations with some of my county elected officials in Tennessee last week. I was in five different counties. And they all talked, these were all rural counties, and they all talked about how farmers are not planting as much this year because they can't afford the chemicals, the pesticides, and the fertilizers for those crops and the diesel to run those tractors and combines. So they were talking about how the food shortage will be worse next year than it is this year. And they're beginning to prepare for that because inflation has an enormous impact on county budgets. And they are all hopeful that the budgets that they have just passed for their county, that they're going to be able to stay within that budget and keep those counties working and afloat. And they're thinking in terms of tax revenues and the fact that just as you said, Lars, those businesses are not going to make as much money because people can't afford to spend or either people that were planning to do projects recall those projects and don't move forward. You know, yesterday we even talked about the fact there's a, I'd never seen the number before, but, you know, when somebody's in the middle of a house deal to buy a house for their family, and then they go to the real, real estate agent and say, I, I can't afford this. You know, the bank just told me what the new interest rate is, and they're backing out, and they're backing out in record numbers right now correct. from home deals. That's and, correct. And, the, and with inflation clocking, officially the number is 9-1, but that includes a bunch of last year that was in the fives, and the newest numbers are more like 15% inflation. 
he's going to cripple this country before we have time to, to, to get the Congress changed over this fall, isn't he? Well, but they're intentional. As I said, this is intentionality at work. We're seeing them make these steps, and they're doing it in a very intentional manner. It is to put us on this socialistic path, government control, 24-7, 365. They make all the, de- <clears throat> all the decisions, and you do as you're told. Unbelievable. And, and I, I just, I mean, I cannot believe that Democrats, even tried and true, you know, yellow dog Democrats, are going to say, yeah, I'm going to vote for more of that. It's, it's hard to imagine that American voters, even those who've always voted Democrat their whole life, are going to say, this sounds like a great idea. I'm going to vote for more of it this fall. Do you think that we're going to see a big red wave? I think it's going to be a tsunami. Well, I hope it is, and I hope it comes soon enough, because I know an awful lot of Americans are seeing their, their wallets, their, their, you know, their, their savings, uh, their 401ks and everything else being wiped out. Senator, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so very much. Good to be with you. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. That's Senator Marsha Blackburn, uh, one of the two U.S. senators for the great state of Tennessee. I'm glad to get your calls. And by the way, if you've got a naysayer out there who says, oh, Joe's doing a fantastic job, why the American economy has never been better, I'd be glad to hear that argument. I can't imagine making it, but but I'd be glad to hear it anyway, just for entertainment purposes, if nothing else. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. If you have a moment, vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find it two places, at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Let's talk drugs for just a moment. In the past two decades, get this, one million people in America have died from drug overdose. One million the last 20 years. But a growing majority of those deaths in recent years have involved fentanyl. Now, fentanyl holds kind of a special place here in the Pacific Northwest. As you know, Washington State wiped out its drug laws. That was the court's action that did that. In Oregon, the voters said, hey, let's legalize hard drugs. Now, fentanyl is not on the list. But there's a reason that it still benefits from this wiping out of the laws against hard drugs. And Josh Marquis joins me now because, Josh, you and I have talked about ballot measure 110 passed overwhelmingly by the voters. Uh, I don't think they knew what they were doing when they passed it or what it was going to do. But now we see drug overdose deaths spiking up hard in Oregon. Now, the same thing's happening in Washington for the other reasons I just mentioned. Uh, but we're getting claims like this one from uh, public-funded radio, OPB, But more than 16,000 Oregonians have gotten help they wouldn't have received without Ballot Measure 110. Why don't we start with that fallacious claim? Well, the fact of the matter is 110 was was sold as a fraud. It was sold as two parts. One is people were going to prison for just having a tiny amount of, say, cocaine or heroin. And what they really needed was help, not prison. and, And this would provide all of it. Oregon actually had before all this, had not been sending to prison, people to prison for drugs for decades. And before this measure passed, Oregon had the second lowest rate of incarceration of any state in the country. So that was just pure nonsense. This was, a, this was the Drug Policy Alliance, which is a fully funded George Soros group out of Washington, D.C., that wanted to see if they could get a, a state in America, Oregon in this case, to have the most extreme drug legalization laws of any place in the world. 
Let me underline that, the world. It's true there are two small countries, Portugal and Uruguay, that have largely decriminalized drugs, but it's nothing like Oregon. And, um, and a story by the AP made that clear. So the fact of the matter is, so they passed this law that said, okay, we're not going to make it a crime anymore. We're not even going to make it a, an infraction. You could have 15, 16 of these charges. So, for example, you can possess up to 39 tablets of oxycodone. Unless you have 40, it's not even a misdemeanor. And you could have 10 or 20 different citations with 39 tablets, and you still wouldn't have anything. So the theory is you're given a ticket. You can't go to jail. You can't lose your license. But you, you could avoid the $25 fine that would come if you call up this phone number and, and access a, a, a treatment program. Sounds great. Um, what's clear, however, is that less than 1% of the 16,000 people given tickets ever call. Why? Because there's no incentive to. There's absolutely no sign or nothing that happens to you if you don't. Um, there's, there's no downside to it. And, so when they, frankly, say, when they say 16,000 have received help, they mean 16,000 got a ticket and were told to call a number, but effectively told, but it doesn't matter if you don't call the number, nothing happens to you. That's what, they, that's what is being reported as gotten help with their drug problem. That's exactly correct. The, the number of people who actually got help with their drug problem is, can be counted on, on one person's hands, less than 10. Because, and it, it, it's absurd. And part of that reason is because the people who hatched this crazy idea never really wanted to do anything other than legalize drugs. And again, the two small countries in South America and Europe have completely different programs. They will uh, pr- uh, revoke your driver's license, your passport, um, and do all kinds of things to you to force you into treatment. And we all know, Lars, that people who are deep in the throes of addiction to drugs like methamphetamine and heroin are generally not making good decisions in their lives. And so to say, you know what, we'd just like you to do the right thing here, that's just not likely to happen. And by the, the way, part- by, by the way, Josh, there's something driving this. Like most decisions in the world are driven by money, sex, or power, or a combination of the three. You know, two of the three, three of the three, one of the three. The woman, Hearst, uh, who is the director of the Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance, which they say is the organization focused on implementing Measure 110, meaning they're getting a chunk of the quarter of a billion dollars that voters said, we'll give you a quarter billion dollars to help these people. So in other words, they've got a financial dog in the fight. They're getting a big chunk of money that they get to spend both on themselves, you know, on on salaries and things like that, but also on treatment. So they've got an incentive to keep this this disaster going. Absolutely. And one of the people who's named frequently, particularly in the Puff piece you talked about by by OPB, is a young woman named uh, Megan Godman, who is described as as she does come from a middle class family. She's educated. She's attractive. She's also a major heroin dealer who killed one of her customers and was sentenced to federal prison under something called the Len Bias Law that many people remember that was intended to get tough on major drug dealers whose customers ended up dying. Now, her version of that is... Now, by the way, stop, Josh. When people report on her, Godvin, and they quote her glowingly, they don't say, by the way, this is somebody whose product was sold to a customer who killed the customer and she was sent to prison for causing the death of one of her customers. They don't include that, do they? No, they, they say things like after a arrest for possession, she ended up in 
Multnomah Drug Court. I've really respected law enforcement, she says. And then it says, Godman said she volunteered to go to jail because she thought it would help her. No, she was. She, it, most drug cases, as you and your listeners know, don't go to federal court. It has to be a big deal to go to federal court. And the Len Bias Law doesn't target just addicts who might sell a little to you know get them into tomorrow. It's designed to go after major drug dealers. And the fact of the matter is, we have had a plague of heroin, and now we have a plague of fentanyl. Now the other side will say, "Well, fentanyl's not covered." Well, fentanyl. It, Police officers, it's, it's effectively it, covered. The way, there's not a single Josh, Josh, it's, it's effectively covered because the cops have been told you can't arrest people for hard drugs. But fentanyl is still in there. If a cop pulls somebody over and they've got a bunch of pills, how do you how would you ever find out they were fentanyl? And you explain the process and why it's not likely to happen. Sure, because 99 percent of the illegal fentanyl and almost all of it, except that administered in hospitals is illegal, is formatted uh, by the cartels in Mexico into pills that are gray blue and have a look to some people like pharmaceutical pills. They have an M on one side and a 30 on the other. There actually is a form of oxycodone uh, called Malincroft that looks like that. So but the problem for a police officer is that's how it presents on the street. And guess what? Oxycodone is covered in Measure 110. So unless the officer has some magical way of determining right there on the street that this is not, in fact, what it appears to be, a Malincroft 30-milligram oxycodone pill, he has no probable cause and no legal authority to seize it, search it, or search further. Or take it to a lab. And, and then you explain, even if, even if he did that, and he convicted somebody of possession of fentanyl, which is still against the law, unlike heroin and cocaine and meth, what would likely happen to somebody caught in possession of fentanyl? 39 or 40 pills, maybe probation, probably not even that. Certainly not prison. And certainly not something you could use as, a le- as leverage to say, get treatment or take, the, you know, take a felony conviction. Because that's how most people were pushed into doing some kind of treatment. Josh, we're going to keep following this one. But, folks, you are getting bad information about this. They say, don't worry about the quarter billion dollars that voters voted along with Measure 110. It's just taking some time. And in the meantime, you know, count up the body bags because the overdose deaths keep happening. And I feel for the parents who lose a child through this. But if you voted for ballot measure 110, in some ways, you signed your own kid's death warrant. That is the bottom line. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. This segment of the show brought to you by Call 811. Call 811 before you dig, whether it's in your yard or in the field. It's the law. Call 811 to know what's below or go to digsafelyoregon.com for details. Glad to be with you and glad always to take your phone calls. I have a bonus day today. I've actually got two naysayers, so I had to kind of flip a coin and pick one of them. David is the lucky guy for starters. Hey, David, welcome to the program. We always put naysayers first. What do you and I disagree about today? Appreciate you being lucky today, Lars, and thank you very much for taking this call. You bet. Uh, I just want to say that I don't think it's the federal government. I don't think it's the state government. I don't think it's the local government's job to tell you what you and your doctor decide to do in a doctor's office. I think it should be left up to the individual. If you don't want to get an abortion, don't get an abortion. That's not your right to tell somebody else not to. It's not my right as a citizen to say I'd like the government to make it illegal to kill someone? Because I think it's it's a good idea to have a law against killing people. It's not killing. 
it's not killing? What happens to the well, baby that, that is taken out of the mother's womb? It's not a baby. When does it become a baby? Fetus. When does when it become outside. a baby, it's like magma David? Lava. It's magma when it's inside. It's lava when it's outside. No, but David, David, and a meteorite isn't a meteorite till it hits the ground. It's a meteor, and before that, it's exactly. an asteroid. We can argue about definitions of words, but tell me this. When does that baby become a baby? When it's outside the body. When it's outside the body? Hmm. Yes. So up to that moment, it's not a baby. Up to that moment, you have every right to decide what does and does not grow inside your body. Boy, am I glad that a majority of Americans disagree with you. Actually, they don't. Actually, I've looked at the polls. They do. Now, if you say, do you want abortion outlawed? Absolutely. You can show me one poll. I can show you a different poll. Polls mean nothing. Well, no, but you know what does mean something? Life means something. And, David, you and I will just have to respectfully disagree. I think that baby is a baby. And I've never once congratulated a woman on her fetus. I have congratulated her. Wow, that's wonderful. You're a mother. You're going to have a baby. Have you chosen a name yet? But let's go to another naysayer. Hey, Ray, welcome to the program. What do you and I disagree about today? Well, you know, I don't know if it's so much a disagreement. It's more of an observation. As someone that's listened to your show off and on for quite some time, I think it's safe to say during the last two years, you've often had callers on your show, and you've also talked about body autonomy and how it's inappropriate for our government to force a vaccine on people and even potentially strip with their job from them if they don't cooperate with the vaccine. That is correct. Now, you, often talk about, you often talk about how the Democrats, if they didn't have double standards, they yeah. wouldn't have any standards at all. Right. Please explain to me how you, not wanting anyone to be forced to have a vaccine, can you please tell me how it's any different to force a woman for, to put her through an unwanted pregnancy? Yes. To me, it just seems completely hypocritical. No, not at all. Because when a doctor, when a government says to its citizens, you have to take this vaccine, they are saying this to people who are adults, because we have a different set of rules for children. And we say to those adults, you must take this medicine. And a citizen has a right to say no. What say does the baby, the unborn baby get in whether or not that baby's life is ended or not? Well, I think in my eyes, I don't consider it a life until it's born, and I think a woman should have a right to choose what she Why does. Why is it okay? Then, then help body. me draw the distinction. Why does it become a life the moment it's born? How does it change from five minutes before it's born to five minutes after? Because there are Democrats who are arguing that even after the baby is born for at least a period of days, maybe even weeks, you should still be able to get rid of the baby if it's inconvenient to you. I, I heard that talking point with the previous caller. It's I not a talking point. It's, it's Governor Ralph Northam, among on, other people. Regardless a guy named... of political leanings, most people don't think that way. You're taking the craziest, dumbest thing. Well, actually, I'll tell you what. You're, trying to, hold, you're weeks... trying to hold that against everybody. Ray, I'm going to give you an example. Two, two weeks ago, in the state of Maryland, they introduced a bill that would allow you to take the life of the baby for up to 28 days after it was born. So when you say it's a talking point, no, it's actually a Democrat proposal for a law in a state. That's more than a talking point. I can point. take something crazy from one Republican and say every Republican thinks that way. I think most people are not going to agree with that one Democrat's viewpoint. Well, there's more than one Democrat who are I'm pushing asking the idea. You, I'm asking you, why yes. is it different? If you're for... It's different because you're talking about... To take a vaccine, because, because what, you're talking about... Because you're talking about an adult 
making a medical decision about their own body. Now, if that baby, the unborn baby, was an adult and said, oh, I don't mind if you killed me, I guess you could say, well, the baby has a right to end its own life. But in most states, Ray, if you want to talk about what most people believe, most states don't think that taking your own life is legitimate, and they've made it illegal. A few states have made it pseudo-legal, like but most Oregon, states... Oregon is pseudo-legal. <laughs> well, yeah, Oregon says that a doctor can help you kill yourself, but only as long as the doctor doesn't actually put his hands so on you. So we all utilize our own pets when they get kind of passive. Yeah, is there a but, difference, yeah. Ray, between a pet and a baby human being? I just think it's not my business. If a woman wants to not have a child, if she doesn't feel that she's ready to have a child, I think it's quite messed up to force her to have that child. So she That's doesn't owe anything to that human that being. You, Does she owe any? Uh, you know, what, man, of, I drive by the freeway. I drive by the freeways all the time in Portland, just like you do. And obviously, people don't care about those lives. They've obviously made bad decisions to maybe end up where we are. But I think where we're living in the world, I think it's obvious. They made that choices as adults. And once again, Ray, you've drawn a distinction between an unborn baby who gets no choice whatsoever and an adult human being who decides to smoke methamphetamine, smoke, uh, you know, crack cocaine or, or to smoke fentanyl or to shoot heroin. And you're trying to equate that with an unborn baby who's done absolutely nothing wrong. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. If you listen to this show, it is certainly no secret that I'm not a huge fan of government regulation. But sometimes we need to have some regulation to ensure that, say, houses don't burn down, streets don't flood, your neighbor's septic stuff doesn't end up in your drinking water. But is Joe Biden ignoring his own federal regulators just so he can push his climate and social justice agendas? I want to talk about that with Wayne Cruz, who's vice president for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, it's good to have you back. Hey, thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. Well, I occasionally get people saying, Lars, you want no regulation at all. I said, no, I'm not an anarchist. I understand you need some regulation, but it's, uh, oh, the German, you know, the Germans, I have all these words for things that we don't have single words for. It's fingerspitzengefühl. I think I'm saying it right. Probably don't have the accent right, but it means lightness of touch. And what it mm -hmm. means is you need some regulation. Like I said, if I lived in a place, I used to have a septic tank and I don't anymore. I'm connected sewer. But if my neighbor has a septic tank, I don't need what's in his septic tank ending up my drinking water. I get that. So they regulate right. those things. But but once you get going, as one of my friends once said, ducks quack, dogs bark, and regulators regulate. You turn these people loose, and they start writing regulations for everything. So I'm not a big fan of regulation. On the other hand, it sounds like Joe Biden is saying, well, take all those regulations that the, mostly the liberals demanded that we have and throw them out the window because I've got an agenda I want to push. Am I wrong about that? I, I don't think you're wrong. And remember, regulations in a free society, it, it, well, put it this way, free enterprise doesn't mean no regulation. You've always right. got to have discipline. And your question is whether that discipline is going to come from a central government or can markets in the competitive process provide that discipline? Now, people argue about what the lines should be, but what I can tell you is that the regulators, under Biden especially, because they're pushing what he's calling a whole-of-government agenda, and he literally uses that phrase, whole-of-government agenda. It appears to come from Tony Blair of the U.K. from years back, but he's pushing a equity agenda, 
a climate crisis agenda, a competition policy agenda, a digital currency agenda. Today, there's a new one on the fees that I think you had caught hold of a press release that oh, I did. Out from CEI. I and did. Uh, so he's so he's what he's doing is he's using where you and I used to talk about, oh, my gosh, these regulators are out of control. They're putting out over 3000 regulations every year, while Congress is only putting out 150 rules. Regulators are doing, you know, 18 or 20 times more rules. It's now not just the individual agencies putting them out, but Biden is, is putting them under umbrellas. You might have noticed like a couple but about, about three weeks ago, there was a his competition council where you had several of the agencies and departments getting together, talking about how they're going to regulate antitrust and how they're going to allocate all of these new investment, in quotes, funds from the various legislation that's come out over the past three years on inflation, innovation, <laughs> infrastructure, all these huge gargantuan spending bills. But he's using the, the reason he is put, able to push a whole of government agenda now and advance this progressive program, which I think is very dangerous, is because the federal government has gotten so large. You talked about what the appropriate lines should be. But we're in a position now where the federal government, which has expanded, spent now now the budget is over six trillion a year. The debt yep. is over thirty trillion. When the government is that big, and it declares and brags on the SBA Small Business Administration website that it's the largest purchaser of goods and services on planet Earth, it brags otherwise wow. it's the biggest employer in the U.S. What does it do with that that power, Mr. Larson? They can go in and say, well, now we've got hiring power, spending power, contracting power, procurement power, all of these ways where they can push and pull and prod not just the governmental sector because it's doing so many things now that it ought not be doing in terms of investment and so forth, but prod the private sector. You know, the, you know there are contractors out there and things like that who are just ordinary businesses, making them go along with the – uh, justice agendas, the environmental well, justice agendas, the climate agenda. So it's very, very, to me, it's very alarming. You and I have talked about, you know, the number of laws and number of regulations and then all of the, right. these guidance documents and dark matter. But now with the government being such a massive presence, especially after the last three years of huge legislative initiatives, hundreds of billions of dollars, that regulatory power has exploded, in my view. And, we, you know, we captured it in the new report that we issued today, but I think we're going to be watching a lot more of that, and we need to really get a handle on it in the next Congress with hearings and such. Well, uh, let me try one on you, because I find that when you can translate mm-hmm. these things back to, well, how does this actually work in practice? So the National Park mm-hmm. Service says, we got to buy plastic bags for all the trash cans. So I don't know how many they buy, <laughs> probably 10, 10 million a year or something. So the vendor comes in and says, we'd like to sell you plastic bags, and we've got the best price and the best quality. And they say, well, uh, does your workforce reflect uh, the diversity of America? And the bag maker says, is that going to get us the contract? Well, okay, we'll, we'll make sure that happens. Oh, and by the way, we want you to pay your workers no more, no less than this amount of money. And the company says, so, so just to sell to you, the federal government, we have to make sure we're paying at the right rate and we're employing the right people and our workforce has the right color composition, uh, g- gender composition, and everything else. That's what you're talking about, where the federal government is such a big buyer of automobiles and plastic bags and everything else, that they can push that agenda. And you say, well, did Congress pass a law saying that, that we have to do this? Right. No. Um, we're just telling you, you want that big contract from the federal government? You'll you'll comply with the things we want you to do. And they get to shove a, pr- a private company into doing that. 
I think that's a real that's a real risk, and it's not even that you know you and I are talking about it on the air. It's that Biden has has been barnstorming over the last few weeks. And I'm sure you've seen it. He was out in Pittsburgh again, you know, a year after the bridge collapsed, and he's he's going around the country talking about the infrastructure plan and the the, the and he and he talks about the inflation plan and the rescue plan and how these are the biggest climate programs that the federal government has ever passed and in ter- you know in terms of spending and that spending how is it going to be allocated well it's going to be allocated the way you just described and he said as much each time he gives these talks and he'll probably do more next week but each time he gives these talks he says and this is going to be union labor and then he t- you know talks about the various uh, restraints on the contracts that they're going to be and so forth. So what? It, it's a real precarious situation. I mean, to heck with the septic tanks, because <laughs> we're at the point where everything now, everything now from local tap water to <laughs> space, space commercialization now has to be a public-private partnership. It has to be business working with and or bowing down to what government commands are. I think that's a real bad position for us to be in. You know, we became the richest nation in the world in the blink of an eye, but it wasn't because of these gigantic government contracts. It was because people and businesses were free. And it'd be nice to it'd be nice to go back to that. I, I always, I've joked with you before, so, you know, most of the world's wealth hasn't been created. Most of the jobs haven't been created yet. All we have to do is take the rocks off the lawn, you know, and let the grass grow. But I, <laughs> Our general counsel said, well, Wayne, most of the regulations haven't been written yet either. (laughs) No, and and you know what? what The the thing is, Wayne, I'm one of those guys who looks at the private sector and the government sector, and I say the government doesn't create anything. The government tends to destroy. That is Wayne Cruz, the VP for policy at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Wayne, it's always a pleasure. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails. We'll do that in just a moment. But if you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it happens right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho for the past 22 and a half years. Our Twitter poll today can be found at Lars Larson Show. And it's a simple question. Should death certificates here in Pacific Northwest states show your real gender or the one you identify with? They are likely to be very different. Uh, people have actually raised this issue, suggesting that states should put on your death certificate when you pass away the gender you identify with, not your actual gender. I'm one of those people who doesn't think it's a good idea to mess with public records uh, for a whole bunch of reasons I could outline, but that's the question for today. Uh, Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Yesterday, we asked you about this crazy plan that January 1, uh, Washington State will add almost half a dollar to the cost of gasoline and diesel in a uh, climate-driven cap-and-tax scheme that Jay Inslee apparently likes a lot. Uh, I don't like it at all. I think they ought to put it on hold. Now, speaking of the climate, are private companies the real answer to public climate change problems if we want to address them? Todd Myers joins me now, who's environmental director with the Washington Policy Center. Todd, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. 
So tell me about this. What What is the idea of having private companies address this instead of government agencies, which you've spent, I think, a decade or more pointing out that government agencies are great for setting goals and saying this is the number we're going to achieve, and then they quickly forget about what they said was their goal because they're never going to get there, and they just set new goals. Would private companies do a better job? Absolutely. And just to give an example of what you just talked about, about how government doesn't live up to its promises, Washington State, uh, about a decade and a half ago, set a target for all state agencies that 20 percent of the fuel they purchased would have to be biofuel. Well, the report came out earlier this summer that they missed the target again. They were only at 11 percent, and it is the 13th year in a row that state agencies have missed the target. So what's so interesting is we have a governor who talks about how important climate change is, but he can't get his own agencies literally to live up to the law of Washington state. The private sector, they do a better job. And and if you um, are concerned about climate change, um, then you can choose companies that are doing things about climate change and reducing their CO2 emissions. If you don't, you can avoid them. You have that choice. And I think that is one reason that it is better to focus on private answers rather than government answers. But the other issue is, is that private innovation just does a better job. Yeah, because the private sector is not driven as much by politics. They're driven by a desire to actually achieve what they're going for because they know that the failure to achieve the goal actually means you lose customers, you lose revenue, and eventually you go out of business. Government just says, yeah, we missed the target. Give us some more money and we'll try better next time. Yes, and and even though we missed the target, um, if you vote for the other side, they're going to do all sorts of things you don't like on other issues. So they're never really held accountable for individual issues, whereas companies like Microsoft, Amazon, even Walmart um, recognize that they're held accountable if they don't meet the target. In the case of Walmart, one of the things that they did was find ways to reduce their energy use and CO2 emissions by changing their supply chain and making it more efficient which is why they not only met their goals, they exceeded them because they found that they were uh, finding ways to save money and use less gasoline, which is good for their bottom line. So that's, you know, there are multiple incentives for uh, private sector businesses to um, achieve these goals and stick to them and be held accountable to them because it actually often helps, um, you know, their bottom line and save money. You know, the only place I'd like to wall off from that kind of choice uh, is is government itself. And Todd, let me explain why. Something crossed my, uh, I mean, I read a lot of stuff at night uh, trying to prepare for the next day's show. And I've got a real concern right now. You're familiar with the term ESG, in, what is it, environmental, social, and yeah. governance? Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and it's one thing if, if I said, well, I want to subscribe to ESG. Uh, people could say, okay, Lars, if you want to buy stocks in companies that are environmentally woke and all that, go ahead. You might take a lower return, but that's your choice. The problem is right now, a whole bunch of the blue states, including Oregon and Washington, have their state treasurers who've signed on to ESG. And then a number of other states, more natural resource states, like, say, Louisiana, saying we're not going to cut our own throat by subscribing to ESG so that things like the oil industry, which is huge in Louisiana, uh, gets cut off from money. We're not going to do that. And, and w- what it got me thinking was if Oregon and Washington say, well, we subscribe to ESG, 
What they're not telling the voters and the taxpayers is we are going to voluntarily take a lower rate of return on state investments, monies that they've stuffed into various accounts, including pensions for public workers. We'll take a lower rate of return so that we can be, you know, woke and PC and, you know, save the planet. Well, that's all well and good, except that if they take a lower rate of return, you know who gets to make up the difference? The taxpayers. Well, that's exactly right. And there are even instances where they will say, oh, no, no, we're not taking a lower rate of return. We're actually seeing a better rate of return. But there's, of course, higher risk that's associated with that, which is important. But the other issue is is that it is regulation uh, under the guise of the free market. What you're doing, what the state is doing is using pensioners' money, taxpayer money, money that has been paid as an obligation to influence the behavior of businesses. That's no different than regulation or subsidies. It just looks a little different, and they just pretend it's different. So I agree with you. I think when you use state pensions and state money to pressure uh, private organizations to follow particular you know, uh, agendas, it's no different than if you were doing it through regulation. See, and that's the concern I've got. And if they tell you you can get the same rate of return, really? So why do people put their money into, say, the oil industry? And you say, because it has a good rate of return and it, it's fairly stable. I mean, there's demand for the product. You know, you know, these companies know how to make the product, uh, but we're going to choose not to invest in them. We'll choose in, you know, something that's more woke or more politically correct. And you say, well, hold on. You can do that without losing anything. If that were if that were the case, you wouldn't need to do ESG groups where you say we're going to deliberately invest in these lower return things because if they're actually higher return things. You wouldn't have to persuade people to go and invest in them. So I don't yeah, necessarily I, buy the argument. Exactly I'm very right. I'm very concerned that state treasurers are selling us out because they don't have to care. It's not their money that they're wasting. That's Todd Myers, who's the environmental director with the Washington Policy Center. Todd, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much for what you do at WPC. You know I'd always prefer that this is a dialogue rather than a monologue. I mean, anybody who knows me knows I can talk for three hours or four hours or five hours without even taking a breath. But I'd like to hear from you. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. We always put naysayers to the head of the line. That's a 25-year-old promise that we're never going to break. And send your emails to talk at large. LarsLarson.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails here in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS, and naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Now, the charge has been leveled that during the protests of 2020, uh, where Portland became a national punchline for the joke, because more than a hundred nights, there were riots, there was arson, uh, there were there was looting, uh, there were there were, there was at least one murder. There were a lot of people who went to the hospital. That uh, the local authorities did next to nothing about it. Uh, the politicians, almost all Democrats and liberals, uh, didn't want to stand up and object to this happening. Uh, and the news media, for the most part, called them mostly peaceful protests, except of course the places where things were looted, riots happened. Somebody died. Uh, people went to the hospital. I- except for that, they were mostly peaceful. Now there's a new report out, a released report from Department of Homeland Security. And the way it's being characterized is that Homeland Security 
under Donald Trump at the time, uh, a president I support, so I've got my dog in the fight disclosed, that uh, Homeland Security decided to come in and make dossiers on thousands of people who were at these Portland protests under the belief that perhaps a U.S. person was funding and generating the protests. Actually, that's a theory I tend to, to agree with. Although identifying those people has turned out to be hard. Well, guess what? I've got the former acting secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, with me. Uh, Chad, good to have you back on the program. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Tell me about this. What, what do you make of the charge that somehow Homeland Security was politicizing this, that you were creating dossiers on thousands of people, and that perhaps some unknown U.S. person, maybe a rich billionaire somewhere, was pushing these protests that happened two years ago? Well, what I think I would say from the top is that the media has gotten the issue in Portland wrong on so many different occasions. Uh, And they've been their stories and they've been the facts to achieve that narrative, right? Then the narrative is somehow DHS politicized what was happening to to Portland for for somehow the president's benefit, which is just absurd on its face. Um, What we saw in Portland was uh, violent opportunists and, and unlawfulness night after night after night, not for a week, not for a few weeks and not even for a month, but we saw it for over 30, uh, over 90 days, over three months. And what we also saw is law enforcement officers were getting severely beaten up and injured. Um, and so you can't say that they were peacefully protesting. You can't say that they were simply exercising their first amendment rights when we had law enforcement officers almost on a nightly basis going to the hospital, the simply two, those two things do not match up. And so, as I uh, said at the time, and I will continue to say that there was a number of First Amendment protests going on in Portland at that time. I'm happy to go head to head with any politician or anyone else who wants to look back at it and somehow say that the events uh, in Portland were because of DHS when that is demonstratively false. Well, let me ask you this. Did you find any evidence that this was that these weren't just spontaneous uh, uh, protests or spontaneous violence that came out of legitimate protests, but that it was actually being driven by forces maybe on the ground in Portland, but not acting as the direct uh, antagonists, the ones throwing the IEDs, the ones putting lasers into the eyes of cops, but that it was being directed and that this was a coordinated activity because that would be significant, wouldn't it? Well, it would be. And that's what we were trying to get to at the end of the day. And and look, the Department of Justice was right there with us. Uh, Obviously, the U.S. Marshal Service was there in the courthouse. And so we had a number of assets trying to understand where was this organization coming from, because those individuals that think that this was just spontaneous, that there's somehow, um, you know, these violent protesters, not even protesters, rioters, somehow got hold of IEDs because they were able to make it in two minutes across the street. They're not open to reality. That's not reality. It was this organization uh, was well-funded over the course of 90 days. Um, We saw the weapons that they were using. We saw the tactics they were using. They had been trained. And so we were pushing our DOJ and others to really investigate what was going on here because laws were being broken. People were being arrested. And these were criminals that were taking these violent actions. I want to be very clear. Those just simply protesting are not, you know, criminals. We weren't targeting them. Those that were breaking the law and taking and, and taking violent action, those were the individuals we were interested in. And so we were also interested in who was funding them and where they were coming from and, and things of that nature. But that was almost exclusively a Department of Justice as they as they investigate those types of crimes on a sort of on a on a daily and, and weekly and monthly basis. 
I'm talking to Chad Wolf. He's the former acting secretary of Homeland Security. So let me ask you this. Is it fair to characterize that Homeland Security gathered dossiers on thousands of people in Portland? I'm not aware that DHS, if if the department did, I, I never saw that information. What our intelligence unit was trying to do was trying to understand who these individuals were from and if they were online uh, advocating for violence, we were trying to identify those for law enforcement. That is when once you start taking speech to the next level where it's starting to become violent, that's where law enforcement gets involved. If you're just online and you're you're talking about your First Amendment rights and you want to say how terrible DHS and everyone else is, that's fine. Not interested in that. We're interested in those folks that are going to take that next step and take take it to a violent level. And so those are the individuals that we wanted to identify for law enforcement, for local law enforcement specifically. Uh, but when local law enforcement refused to help, then we needed to take action to stop this action. It's what law enforcement does across the country every single day. If they see a criminal ring, if they see a criminal enterprise in downtown Chicago or New York, well, guess what? They're going to investigate that. And they're going to try to identify who those individuals are and bring them to justice. And so that's what we were doing. Look, I had some problems initially with the individual in charge of our intelligence unit at DHS during my time at Portland. I removed him. Uh, I demoted him and moved him out. Um, And so I take or I took at the time my responsibilities as acting secretary to make sure that we were not targeting U.S. citizens that were peacefully protesting and that we were only looking at individuals that were choosing to take this to the next level, which is that violent level into harming law enforcement officers. Is there any truth to the to the allegation that's been leveled at you that uh, that you push the constitutional boundaries? No, absolutely not. I think if you look at all the different uh, you know reports, we actually had a congressional hearing. We had all these other uh, you know inquiries into Portland. I think you will see at the end of the day that we took very very specific action with very with very specific limitations on making sure that we only uh, targeted individuals who were directly threatening or are ha- acting on their violent intentions, uh, targeting that courthouse. And DHS has the authority to do that. We normally do that every day with local law enforcement. But when Portland Police Department, at the direction of mayor, decided that they weren't going to enforce the law at that courthouse, well, then we had an option. We could either let it burn to the ground or we could take action and arrest individuals that were violently assaulting the courthouse and law enforcement officers. And that's what we did. So this idea that Senator Wyden now is is coming in saying, you know, we somehow provoked violence in Portland. I think if you look at any reasonable American that looks at Portland will say that that's absolutely absurd, that their their violent tendencies in Portland, the homelessness in Portland, the violence and criminality in Portland is there because the political leadership in Portland is frankly too soft on them and won't actually make hard decisions. And that's what we saw in in the summer of 2020. And at the end of that summer, in the August, finally, the governor of of Oregon sent in the state police. I asked her to send in the state police on day one. So for 90 days, she could have avoided this. She chose not to, but finally sent in the state police, uh, which was our first request. Well, I I have to agree with you, absolutely. Ms. Secretary, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. That is the former acting secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. We'll be back in a moment. I'll take your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. 
I want to make a quick mention of something that was said by a Seattle area prosecutor before I get to a letter that was written by a cop in Oregon, a cop who decided to leave her job with a big city police agency at a lower paycheck, less seniority and all that. And when they tried to hire her back and say, hey, would you come back to work for us? She gave them both barrels. But let me get to that in a moment. A Seattle area prosecutor is being slammed because he made a presentation to law enforcement officials, did a Zoom presentation on what was called considerations for juvenile suspects, even including kids who would bring a gun to school, that all of them should get no jail time. No jail time altogether. Carr said, even for serious offenses, the primary focus will be on rehabilitation. Get used to this concept. Well, I would suggest that we get we get Ben Carr out of his office and that we say, you don't have any business making these decisions. If you're going to tell us that a kid brings a gun to school, great potential for people to be hurt or even killed, that one makes no sense to me. But let me jump to this cop. It's a police officer I know, Stephanie Hudson, and she left. She left her bureau, Portland Police Bureau, after 26 years because she said she couldn't tolerate it anymore. All of the craziness, no backup from City Hall. Riots and burning and arson and looting and even murders. Now, Seattle's had the same kind of problem. So now, Portland police are trying to hire back some of their recently retired cops. And they sent out a letter. They said, please come back, blah, blah, blah. And they gave a lot of answers that she talks about. Here's what she wrote back. Dear PPB chiefs, I can only assume that the letter regarding the retire rehire program was sent to me in error. An officer of 26 plus years does not resign months before they're eligible to retire to go to another police agency where they take a cut in pay and lose seniority unless it's pretty awful where they are at. Your letter states, you left at a great time of despair for the Bureau in the city of Portland. 2020 became a perfect storm that thrust our Bureau in the city into a very dark period. She writes, this sounds as if you feel like those who left abandoned the city in a time of need. But in reality, it is the officers who were abandoned. The darkness, the destruction, and the death to Portland was a result of your failed policies and lack of leadership. The perfect storm of which you speak was the demonization of police by the mayor's office and city council members and the failure of PPB leadership to stand up to them in support of their officers. Your letter mentions considerable support from elected officials. This is laughable. Portland has a mayor who refuses to call out Antifa and condemn the riots, a DA who refuses to prosecute violent rioters, and a council member, Joanne Hardesty, who accuses police of committing the arsons and violence that were committed by the rioters. All of these previously mentioned people blame right-wing extremists and the police for the violence and destruction. Do you recall Marquis' love? Love repeatedly punched and then kicked a man who, with whom he had no beef, in the head, leaving him unconscious in the street. It's a miracle they didn't kill that man. Yet he got near, merely a 20-month sentence, of which he'll probably serve only a year. Out of a 1,000-plus arrests made during the riots, probably 10% were even prosecuted. Is that the considerable support of which you speak? The one obvious sign that nothing has changed is the statement that the city will disqualify for rehire candidates for, quote, cooperating with federal agents to attack 
attack Portland residents. That statement is beyond offensive. Those federal agents responded out of necessity to protect an occupied federal courthouse that was under attack because the mayor wouldn't allow PPB to do it. It was federal agents, local law enforcement, and actual citizens of Portland who were being attacked by Antifa. Citizens with political and religious beliefs that oppose Antifa and those who are in positions of power in Portland are left to fend for themselves. Just ask Andy No, that's the journalist who was beaten up badly two years, two and a half years ago. Nobody arrested. Meanwhile, the mayor is more concerned about punishing the feds for blocking the bike lane near the federal courthouse. By cooperating with federal agents, are you referring to those PPB officers who are given federal credentials? Those federal credentials were necessary to arrest the most violent offenders in hopes those offenders would remain in custody as opposed to booking them into the Multnomah County Jail, where they'd be released the same night and immediately commit more crime thanks to D.A. Schmidt. Antifa became so emboldened with the lawlessness that was embraced by our city leadership, they actually began hunting and murdering people. Of course, one of the murder victims was deemed a right-wing extremist and a Trump supporter, so no big deal, right? Thank God those federal marshals sought to bring that victim's murderer to justice. Each of your signatures on that rehire letter is an endorsement of the statement that federal agents attacked the residents of Portland. I don't know who else, how else it can be interpreted. If you don't agree with that statement, it says more about you that you willingly signed the letter. I don't presume to speak for other officers, she writes, but I can tell you your letter was not well received. It's been described as tone deaf. You might have had more luck had you acknowledged the roles that you, the mayor, and the city council played in that perfect storm that thrust the city into a dark period. Leadership is bigger than you as an individual, and sometimes it requires you to step out of your comfort zone and do what's morally right. It's more than a bump in pay and a better pension. You don't choose a leader because of the color of their skin. You choose them because they've proven themselves. You don't force a woman who was respected by her peers and worked her way through the ranks to become chief to resign because of the color of her skin. Do you have any idea what that did for morale in the rank and file? PPB command need leaders, not followers. Leaders who are willing to make sacrifices. Leaders who show their support for the men and women who work 24-7 to protect and serve its community. Good luck, Stephanie Hudson, former PPB officer. You've got the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. I'm glad to get your calls, and we'll get back to those shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show on Twitter. And if you hate Twitter like me, go to my website. The vote counts the same, LarsLarson.com. I might remind you that Nancy Pelosi has now been in Congress for almost 40 years because we don't have congressional uh, term limits. And there are a lot of other people who stay there way past what I would call their expiration date uh, for politicians. Uh, what about this idea of term limits? And Rachel McCubbin joins me now. And I admire Rachel because she used to work for, she's the Kentucky State Chair for U.S. Term Limits and used to be on the staff as the state director for Dr. and Senator Rand Paul. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Lars. It's great to be on with you. Well, I, I got to tell you, over the weekend, somebody was tweeting at me who uh, I guess hates my guts and, and tried to insult me by saying, you ought to go to work for Rand Paul. And I said, well, I've never been invited. And frankly, I don't think he needs me, but but I'm a great admirer of Dr. Paul. So I'm a great admirer of anybody who worked on his staff. Um, term limits have been a little bit of a problem for me. And, and the reason is that uh, while in general... I, I don't have a problem with the presidential term limit of two terms. I think the best term limit would be 
the person who occupies the office who says, I'm going to go do a certain amount of work as service to my country or to my state, uh, and then I will hang it up and move on and let somebody else occupy the office. But these days, it doesn't seem we can actually trust politicians to know when it's time to head for the exit. Well, I think there is some logic to that um, side of the argument, Lars. But here's a problem that I see. The system is so broken there that typically it takes so many years for a member of Congress to have any clout, any leadership in the Congress, that those first years they really are able to accomplish nothing. So let's say that uh, a new freshman congressman says, I'm going to go for two or three terms. And they're only reaching a point at the end of their third or fourth term where they really could have any impact on legislation as it moves through the Congress. So it really uh, hamstrings them and their constituents and their district to just toss in the towel after a predetermined number of of, um, years, in my opinion. Well, see, and I'm with you, Rachel, but just so people understand what you're speaking of, if you show up at at Congress as a freshman uh, member of Congress, male or female, uh, you're not going to be the chair of a committee. You may not even get on some of the major committees where you can influence the, the outcome of major legislation or even ask big questions during the hearings that happen. All of right. that goes to the more senior members, unless we ever got to a point where, you know, where you had a senior member of Congress would be somebody who's three terms in and the junior members are one term in. So it would have to, uh, I guess, tighten up the whole process a little bit where after two terms, you might be viewed as one of the, uh, you know, one of the, the people who've been there the longest. Well, and if we had term limits so that there was a, an expiration date, as you termed it earlier, that is known, uh, there may be a little bit more um, ability and, and interest in the members of Congress to step out boldly on some issues that might otherwise uh, make it tricky for them on the reelection uh, ballot and, and do some things that are, are pretty uncommon in Washington today. So I think there's so many arguments that we could really make for term limits. And, you know, the thing is that most voters really intuitively understand that it's time for term limits. They may not have a lot of education on how we would accomplish that. And so there may be a lot of education that needs to take place. But the majority of voters, regardless of where they come down on uh, partisan lines, uh, strongly support term limits for Congress. Yeah, something like 82 percent would agree with a constitutional amendment to place term limits on members of Congress. Same way we have uh, a constitution that says the president can serve two terms and that's it. Two terms in a lifetime, and that's the most you get. I and and nobody, well, other than Barack Obama, nobody seems to object to that. Exactly. So I have a tip for your listeners. If anyone wants uh, to know how to be a real hit at uh, holiday parties coming up, <laughs> uh, where you may have to tippy toe around on different issues, you know, elections just come and gone. Who do, who did they support? Those kinds of things. You can't talk about religion, politics, whether you're vaccinated or not. But if you just ask you know, a new person in the family or a new person around the table, how do you feel about congressional term limits? They're going to be uh, in agreement with you on that. It's a great, it's my own personal tip for everybody for holiday parties. And by the way, for U.S. term limits, has the group actually proposed a formal constitutional amendment that, that can get some consideration and maybe get ratified by the states? There is. There, at, at different levels, there is um, an, a piece of legislation in the U.S. Senate that's sponsored by Senator Cruz and has 15 co-sponsors, including Senator Paul, that uh, would outline um, a call for a constitutional amendment, and it calls for uh, two terms in the Senate or three 
and three terms in the House. That's that's what uh, is outlined there. And, of course, the other route to get to that would be to go from the grassroots up, so from the state legislative level up. And there are a number of uh, state legislatures that have passed a resolution calling for a congressional uh, uh, term limit convention. And uh, that's that's another direction from which we are trying to seek a constitutional amendment for term limits. If you and your listeners recall, there there was a court case back in the 90s where it was determined that states can't arbitrarily determine that they're going to term limit their own members of Congress, for example, and that the only real route for us to achieve term limits for Congress would be a constitutional amendment. And so that is the route that uh, our organization, U.S. Term Limits, is pursuing. Rachel, maybe you can address one of the other issues I've raised. I mean, there's the first issue of I think the best term limit is a self-imposed one. The second one is this, and it's exactly what you talked about. You say, well, you know, if, if, you're, if you're only going to be there, the max is six years in the House and 12 years in the Senate, um, then when you limit somebody's ability to stay there forever, then where does that power go? And my read from a distance, I've never worked Capitol Hill, uh, is that it goes to the bureaucracy. That when the bureaucracy sees, oh, hey, a senior House member is now somebody who's been there for five and a half years, uh, then the bureaucracy simply says, hey, listen, Congressman, we know how this works. We've been over the EPA for a couple of decades. We're lifers because we can't be fired, you know, for the most part. Um, That you end up shifting the power from the people's representatives to a bunch of people who were never elected and not answerable. How do you address that concern? And, Lars, that honestly, was the biggest uh, concern that I had when really examining this debate altogether. And I'll tell you where I eventually came to have some uh, level of confidence in this. If um, a a person in Congress has promised for the last 20, 30, 40 years to totally revamp the bureaucracy and to do such things as, you know, cut out some of the cabinet levels, et cetera, but they haven't they haven't been successful in reforming the bureaucracy, then we, we just need to get a new Congress up there that would actually reform what the bureaucrats are able to do and able not to do. I think that's the way to get it done. That's Rachel McCubbin, who is the Kentucky State Chair for U.S. Term Limits. Rachel, thanks so very much. I appreciate your time. Send those emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you care to, tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's my pleasure to be with you. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, we always put naysayers right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you'll find the question every day at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Now, I made it clear who I want to see elected in the election that is coming up. Uh, And I I want to see Joe Kent become a member of the House of Representatives. And I would like to see Ron Wyden, who has been in government employment for about 42 years. I would like to see him removed from the U.S. Senate and replaced by a young lady by the name of Joe Ray Perkins, who joins me now. Joe Ray, welcome back. Hey, Lars. How are you doing? I hope you can hear me okay. I can hear you just fine. I want you to tell my audience, because I've heard so many things about you, and I hope it won't hurt your feelings. And I, 
I don't think you're crazy, but there are people out there who say, well, she's just not a great candidate or she's crazy. Look, as far as I know, your positions on the issues are why I decided to endorse you. Uh, and, and I don't do that lightly. I, in fact, if I had my druthers, I wouldn't do endorsements at all. But people at election time say, hey, who would you suggest we vote for? And even for places I don't live where I don't even have a vote. I don't live in Oregon, so I don't get to vote in the election where you're going to beat Ron Wyden and remove him from the Senate. But I do them because people ask me my opinion. And what good is a talk show host if he doesn't have an opinion about something? So my opinion is based on your positions on the issues And I think you've got sensible positions. So take that for what it's worth and tell my audience, what do you say to people who say, oh, no, 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 we we think she backs the wrong things. Persuade them otherwise. Well, I back the Constitution and I back Americans' right to their individual freedom. So I'm I'm not quite sure what part of that is crazy, backing the entire U.S. Constitution, including the Bill of Rights. If, if people have a problem with that, let's sit down and have a conversation, find out why and why that makes me crazy. No, I'm Joe Ray. Listen, understand in this political environment, I'm pro-life. Uh, the folks out there, some of them, the liberals and the progressives will say, well, that's an extremist position. I said, no, it's actually the position of a majority of Americans uh, that don't believe that you should just have abortion on demand and kill babies anytime you want. Americans are also, if you poll them, are not going to go for a 100% ban on abortion, although I would vote for it. But uh, they say, no, we don't want to go that far. But they also don't like the current situation, which has abortion for anyone. And and frankly, it's not even a federal issue at this point. It's a state issue. And yet that's one of the positions you take and that I take uh, where people say, well, that makes you an extremist. No, not if I agree with the majority of Americans. That makes me part of the norm, doesn't it? Absolutely, Lars, and I am 100% pro-life. I don't ever make any qualms about it. Um, it. It technically is a state issue, and, and I'm with you. I would love for people to not ever choose abortion. Um, I would prefer that they would choose adoption if they're in a situation where they don't want or cannot uh, or, or not in a position to be able to raise a child. So I, I will stand for life and do what I can to ensure the life of the preborn baby is is saved and is raised in a good home if if need be what else would you do what else would you push for if you became a member of that exclusive club the u.s senate well this is where they might think i'm a little bit crazy uh i am going to sponsor a bill to get rid of the u.s department of education i have yet to find in the constitution and if i'm wrong i'll restate my position but i do not see where it is at all constitutional i haven't found that and the U.S. Department of Education is being run by the National Education Association, and they're the ones putting out these radical ideals that are being foisted upon our young children. And that is not good. The job of educators is to teach them basics, teach them math, reading skills, how to write. My gosh, Lars, these kids don't even know how to write cursive anymore. This is ridiculous. Just a basic thing like cursive penmanship. But they, they're not going into, into the world um, as adults with the skills necessary for them to be able to compete. Joe Ray, I don't consider that crazy. In fact, it's the fastest way to save a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. I mean, it's it's almost $100 billion a year that we spend on the Department of Education. And like you, I don't see it in the Constitution. I think it's a, it's a local issue. And I think the reason the the teachers unions have chosen to to want to impose this from above and say, well, we've got this big pile of money and you can get it if you 
if you kowtow to what the federal government tells you to do in your school district. And, of course, the school districts line up for the cash, and they say, yeah, whatever you want us to do, we'll do. And they push critical race theory. They push the 1619 Project, the America-hating, America-is-bad project. Uh, they're going to push transgender. They're going to push, uh, you know, have having uh, drag queens come into schools and do presentations to kids and grooming by teachers and that sort of thing. They push all kinds of crazy stuff. I'd get rid of I'd, I'd be right there with you. I'd say get rid of the Department of Education, save a pile of money, and let the local communities around America decide how schools are going to be run. Absolutely. I, I agree. And the schools, are, the schools are seeing a mass exodus um, in, the, in the private schools and homeschooling. And uh, hopefully that's going to be a wake-up call for them along the way. But we do need to get rid of the Department of Education. And like you said, that saves a lot of money. And I know people hear these numbers thrown around like a trillion dollars, but it would take spending a million dollars every day um, for (laughs) like 2,400 years just to reach $1 trillion. What else would you do in the U.S. Senate? Where do you stand on energy? On energy, we need to be go back to being energy independent. President Trump virtually had us there. And this idea that uh, we are now having to beg OPEC for oil is makes no sense to me whatsoever. I was listening to an uh, interview the other day, and I haven't done the research for Oregon yet, but New Hampshire is going from, I think it's 2 million cubic, excuse me, 18 million cubic feet of natural gas to 2 million cubic feet of natural gas. This winter, they're not going to be able to afford their gas prices for to heat their homes. This is wrong. President Biden shut down the Keystone Pipeline on day one, which is going to be devastating for millions of Americans across the state. And take a look at these gasoline prices. I was just looking at the gas prices. Um, and it's going to get worse because OPEC's cutback has not been felt fully yeah. yet. No, it hasn't. Plus, we've had refinery fires, and they're getting ready to do the winter crossover shutdown, to, which makes no sense. Um, so this is just out-of-control government trying to completely demolish our economy. Should we and be spending, to- Should we send tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine? Absolutely not. We've got a crisis at the border. We have people coming into our country. We have a crisis of homeless people. Lars, we were just downtown Portland on Friday, and I'll tell you, I was fighting back the tears just seeing the homeless people just sitting there with no hope, nowhere to live. Yet we open up the borders, and then we send billions of dollars to Ukraine to, to fight their, their battles, and we've got our own battles here. Let's take care of our people first. I, I would, too, and I'd remind people, Senator Ron Wyden does not make his home in Oregon, has not for years. He lives in New York City. His family's in New York City. His kids go to New York schools, and his wife has a business in New York City. Vote for Joe Ray Perkins for the U.S. Senate. Back in a moment, we'll talk about some of the things Joe Biden had to say last night. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls. I know a lot of you have been waiting a while. We'll get to you at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You probably heard that North Korea has launched an intercontinental ballistic missile above its eastern waters. That happened yes, it happened today, actually, their time. And, of course, the U.S. and its allies said, you can't be doing this. It triggered alarms in Japan. It set off the country's emergency alert system. 
uh, after two short-range ballistic missiles were launched, uh, you can only imagine how the United States would respond if a uh, antithetical or antagonistic foreign power decided to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles and overfly any part of the United States. So I thought I'd get Kelly Vlahos on, who's senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and editorial director of Responsible Statecraft. Kelly, welcome back to the program. Oh, great to be here, Lars. So what do we do about this problem that the little crazy man in North Korea seems to get uh, be doing crazier and crazier things lately and, and maybe even purposely? He knows we're heading up to a major election and some major choices. You're right. You know, I, we've had a couple of stories uh, about this on responsible statecraft. Clearly, the Biden strategy, if there is one for North Korea, isn't working and deterrence isn't working. You know, we've had um, we've had a destroyer, we've had a missile cruiser and an uh, aircraft carrier. They're all right now engaging in drills with Japan and South Korea, anti-submarine drills. I mean, this is part of why uh, Kim Jong-un says he's angry is because they're doing these drills for the first time since 2017. But the fact that where they are doing them has not stopped him from upping the ante and continuing to launch these missiles. And they seem to be getting closer and closer and closer to our allies' territory. So, I mean, you know, I hate to say this, but I mean, the last time that things were tamped down is when Donald Trump actually got out of Washington and went over there to talk to Kim Jong-un. Now, now, now come he, on, Kelly, why, why do you hate to say that? Why, why do you hate? Because well, he, he, look, I know he didn't get the whole solution, but he was a bit of a game changer in that we'd sent, what, yeah. three decades of watching next to nothing happen, lots of six-party talks and you know discussions of the shape of the conference table and all kinds of other crazy stuff mm-hmm, that didn't mm-hmm. get anywhere. Trump actually moved the needle to some extent. And now what? We've given all that up and we've gone back to, well, we'll just do it the way we've always done it, which is nothing. Well, the reason I say I hate to say it is because I think some people expect, you know, a more aggressive, muscular military response to Kim Jong-un. And what I'm saying is I agree entirely with you, Lars, that I think that him getting out of Washington and going and talking and starting a dialogue was actually the last time we saw um, some amount of, um, I don't want to say peace, but that the tensions had gotten down to a level low enough or there, there was an ability to talk. And we don't have that right now. And I don't know what the Biden administration is thinking, what they're doing. They're completely distracted right now. But you know what? They can't and walk at the same time. And they have people in the State Department that are specifically devoted to North Korea, people in the Pentagon devoted. You know, they have the North Korea portfolio. What are we doing? We don't know. But, you know, sending more ships out and doing more military drills isn't cutting it, apparently. Well, and and Kelly, I'd point this out. Do you see very much uh, diplomacy being done to try to resolve Ukraine right now out of the Biden administration? No. <laughs> no. Uh, let's see. Where are we engaging in? Oh, I I remember we are engaging in diplomacy with Iran, which threatens on a weekly basis to destroy Israel and the United States. We're negotiating with them because Joe wants a deal. And who are interlocutors? Oh, that would be the Russians. Well, I thought we were on the outs with the Russians. Well, no, only when it comes to Ukraine. We want them to help craft a deal in Iran that gets Joe some kind of deal that gives the mad mullahs a bomb fairly soon. Um, uh, oh, and by the way, the Russians will make bank on the thing, tens of billions of dollars. 
it, this just sounds like a, an administration. And what was it Bob Gates said about Joe Biden, that he's got every single major foreign policy position in his entire history wrong? <laughs> and, and then, of course, and then, of course, Barack Obama said, never underestimate Joe's ability to F things up. I can't use the actual word Obama used because the FCC would find me. These guys have absolutely no clue when it comes to foreign policy. But I spent four years listening to idiots on the left say Donald Trump knows nothing about foreign policy. I'll tell you what, compared to Joe Biden, he, se- he-, he seems absolutely brilliant. Well, I mean, do you remember when Joe Biden came to Washington? Everybody said, oh, the adults are in the room now. We are going to, like, fix all the all the broken stuff from when Trump was here, and we're going to reaffirm all of our relationships with the rest of the world and restore the international rules-based order. I mean, come on. If these are the adults in the room, trouble. Because we're well, looking at we're looking at possible two front, maybe three front war. Yeah. Russia, China, and North Korea. Yep, all three at once. And and oh, or 2023 and, and, people coming. And we burned down our strategic petroleum reserve, which means a two or three front war would put pressure on our military because we don't have the fuel. We're giving away the bombs and bullets to Ukraine. Uh, you know, we're not rest- But we have a very woke military. Maybe North Korea will be uh, inspired uh, by or fearful even of, uh, of transgender soldiers uh, and service members uh, coming at him. I don't, do you think that'll work? I don't know, but I'd like to pick up on your last point of us giving everything away, and that's a serious problem. You know, we are, we're down to the point now where we are promising Ukraine things that we do not have anymore, and it's going to take months, if not years, to get some of the stuff that we're promising over to them because we've been giving it all away. So I agree with you. There is a reckoning coming here, and nobody seems to be paying attention except for some Republicans in, you know, on the Hill today you know, who are starting to push back on what Kevin McCarthy called the blank check. Now, what will happen after the election? I don't know. You know, but I think there needs to be some checks and balances on what's going on here. Well, I guess the bad guys, and there are bad guys in the world, have to at least believe that we will do something if they do other things. So when North Korea says, don't hold your drills, and if you do, we're going to be launching missiles over Japan and scaring everybody half to death, um, you know, they're testing us and and giving that up and saying, okay, we'll stop the drills. Well, then North Korea is in the driver's seat at that point. And you've got a Joe Biden who, you know, he, he promised to vilify the Saudis until he needed their oil to try to win an election. So it's like everybody in the world is watching this guy screw everything up and then wondering, should we fear what he's going to tell us he might do? I don't think so. I think I think he's communicated loud and long that, that you have no reason to fear this particular American president. Right. And as you remember, Trump did um, roll back those exercises in 2017. But it was paired with his insistence that they talk in person and they start negotiating something. Now, we lament that it never was followed through and, you know, we didn't have that that whole story there. But the fact is, he didn't just say, "Okay, we'll stop all his military drills, whatever you say, Kim Jong-un. It was more like, "Okay, we'll pair this back. But then we have a few demands or we have a few things that we would like. And one of those is sitting down at the table and talking now. You know, whether that's about denuclearization or sanctions or whatever, but it, 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 it's a delicate dance. And people, you know, are supposed to be 
have the ability in Washington, supposedly the, the adults in the room, to do that kind of diplomacy. And it's just not happening. 30,000 people at the State Department. And you've just raised the Q issue, Kelly. Quid pro quo. But those are the things that yeah. get American presidents impeached by insisting on quid pro quos. Quid pro Joe. He just wants the quid pro from Beijing. That's Kelly Vlahos, who's senior advisor at the Quincy Institute, editorial director at Responsible Statecraft. This is the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Hey, Paul, welcome to the program. You're a naysayer. Will you stick around for a few questions after you've made your, your best argument? Yes, Lars, I'll stick around. Thanks for calling in from a great state. We admire Ron DeSantis tremendously, almost as much as we don't admire Joe Biden. So thanks for the call from Florida. What do we disagree about tonight? Well, my issue with you is uh, what you said about denying health care to illegal aliens. I would ask you if you think that's justified from a moral and a biblical perspective. And I'd also ask you if you believe in God. Yes to both. Okay, well, are you aware that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's a lot about immigrants and how we treat them? Yes. And if we treat them badly, it's displeasing to the Lord. And I will cite Leviticus 19.34. I acknowledge all of that, but here's the difference. You're calling somebody who comes illegally into our country an immigrant. I do not call them immigrants. I have objected to the use of that term, and here's why. I believe that an immigrant is somebody who says, I want to move to someone else's country. And the legal way to do that is to approach the U.S. Embassy or U.S. Consulate in any country in the world, literally, and say, I would like to immigrate to the United States. And they will say, why? We do that for over a million people every year. Here are the forms. Fill them out. There is a line. You may have to wait for a while. And you come here legally. If you come here without following the rules of our country, this country is a great country because we protect people's rights. But the only way to protect people's rights is to have a government that enforces the rules. If I say, if you say you own a piece of property in Florida and somebody comes along and says, Paul doesn't own this piece of property, I'm claiming it for myself. You would go to the courts, you'd go to the sheriff, you'd go to the police chief, you'd go to, you have numerous venues to go to, to say, I own this piece of land, this man is trying to take it from me, he is a criminal and he's trying to steal something from me. When somebody comes into our country and says, I will not obey your laws, even though your laws are the most generous on planet Earth in terms of allowing people to move to a desirable country. There's no other country on Earth as welcoming and generous with immigration as we are. But you're calling an illegal alien, somebody who has violated our laws by coming here, an immigrant. I don't know how you would justify that. Can you? Well, I will simply say this, that the Bible actually uses the term alien. And it says in Leviticus 19.34, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. And we do. And we do. See, number one, Paul, we're not a theocracy. Our country was based on a belief in God. Its, its founders used God and said, we believe that God gave us these rights. We're then going to tell the government to protect the rights that were given to people by God. Now, but we are not a country run on biblical law, nor should we be. We're a country that welcomes people of every faith and people of no faith. You would agree with that, wouldn't you? 
Um, no, not quite. You because don't agree with doing, that? Okay, what you're tell me doing why. is politicize. Wait a minute, Lars. I listen to you. Please listen to me. Okay. You're, you're getting off the subject. Issue. You're politicizing this no, issue. No, I'm not at all. I'm saying if the rule I'm says no, moral, biblical perspective. No, no, but 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 Paul, this country runs on a set of laws adopted by people who consent to be governed by the government and have representatives who pass those laws. When somebody comes here in violation of those laws and says, "I will simply take my residency in the United States," he is not, or she is not, an immigrant. They are a thief. They are stealing I'm not something. I'm argue about the terminology. I'm talking about the moral and But it's all about terms. the terminology. If the Bible says you will welcome the alien, we do welcome aliens, over one million of them every single year. In fact, we even tell those aliens, and we don't have to, but we tell those aliens, if you want to come to the United States legally and then follow our laws for at least five years, we will allow you to become a citizen. If you violate our laws, we will kick you out, even if you came a here. A lot of these people, Lars, a lot of these people are coming here out of desperation. They're persecuted. No, they're coming they're here out of greed victims of uh, they're coming here for the most part out of greed most country hold on paul i'm happy to have a good day there but i won't i won't have this kind of conversation paul most of the people come here out of greed and i understand if you're in guatemala the average wage for an average guatemalan is sixteen hundred dollars a year a little over a hundred dollars a month if you come to the United States, the average wage of a minimum wage worker in this country is about $30,000 a year, 20 times as much as Guatemala. They're coming here for economic gain, which is what thieves some usually are, do. But some of them are also coming here, Lars. And we have a process for that, don't we? Criminals, criminals and drug cartels in Paul, their own country. They're coming Paul, here out of desperation. Paul, and we have laws to cover people seeking asylum. And we say what is a legal way to seek asylum and what is what is does not qualify for asylum. See, you started with the Bible, and I had to remind you, we're not run by biblical law. We're run by man's laws. And the Bible reminds you, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And when we have laws on the books, I think God believes that good citizens should follow the laws of the countries that they're in. And if they don't like them, they go to the, their representatives and they say, let's change those laws. But you've been a reasonably good naysayer, and I appreciate the call. You know I'd always prefer that this is a dialogue rather than a monologue. I mean, anybody who knows me knows I can talk for three hours or four hours or five hours without even taking a breath. But I'd like to hear from you. If you want to jump into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams. Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. Will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone.